You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. A happy new year. Good to see you. I, I got to admit to a little bit of pastoral skepticism this morning when we got here an uh, hour or so ago. I said, I suspect that... Uh, We'll have fewer people here this week than we did last week on Christmas Sunday, um, but I was wrong. Thank you uh, for being here. Thank you for prioritizing uh, the corporate gathering, worshiping together. Let me remind you real quickly, uh, if you are a regular to the early service, 8.30 service, uh, which by the way, I could get used to this schedule. Um, man, I feel like I had a lot more time this morning at home. I, I got up around the normal time, but I was uh, a lot more chill, as the kids say, right? I know. Uh, Enjoyed uh, my coffee and uh, taking, uh, taking my time a little bit more than I normally would. Normally we get up here about 7-something on Sunday mornings uh, to start the 8.30 service. But anyway, the 8.30 service will move to the Family Life Center starting next week. So don't forget that. We'll go back to our regular schedule, just change of location. And I know that doesn't impact uh, some of you. Uh, others of you, it does. And if you uh, have not uh, come to understand or maybe heard some of the reasoning behind that, would love to to have a conversation with you about that, but we are uh, full on starting to make preparations for our move to the new facility, uh, hopefully uh, late summer, early fall of 23. And so uh, a move, uh, yeah, praise the Lord. Um, a move for a church doesn't happen quite like it does for your family, uh, where you can you know, spend a few days, kind of pack up everything, load it up and move. Uh, and so we've got to start now making some preparations for that and also maintaining two campuses uh, for a period of time. So pray for the staff, pray for other leaders as we strategize and plan. And uh, whenever we make a plea for help and uh, some strong backs and those kind of things, then please respond and uh, come give us some help. Uh, I also, I feel like I'm obligated to say this. Keegan did a great job of telling the uh, classic, uh, the pastoral equivalent of a dad joke, uh, right? Uh, well, I also have to tell each of you that I'm so proud of you because this year you have perfect attendance. So there you go. Um, we're done with the, uh, the cheesy jokes this morning, I think. John chapter 1 is where we are in our Bibles. I- I'm wearing my new hokas this morning. My kids got me hokas for Christmas. They're comfortable. They're bouncy. I feel like I could preach for a couple of hours, y'all, especially since I didn't do an early service this morning. Cowboys aren't playing today, so um, here we go. Buckle up. John chapter 1. We're in a sermon series called Person of Interest. This is a study of the Gospel of John that we started uh, four weeks ago, looking at John's purpose statement in chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31, and his prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And it's in that prologue primarily where John sets the stage for the rest of the Gospel. From his very first sentence, John proclaims uh, that Jesus is the eternal pre-existent word, the one-of-a-kind Son of the Father, the Son who is himself God. Yet this eternal word has now become flesh, as we saw last week. And in his prologue, John introduces many of the major themes that are developed throughout the gospel, such as Jesus as the life, Jesus as the light and the truth, Believers as God's children adopted into his forever family, the world's rejection of Jesus. And so in those first 18 verses, uh, we find the grand entryway into John's uh, breathtaking account of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, These opening paragraphs of John's gospel announce good news. That's the gospel. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And so you may have noticed that in the uh, prologue of the first 18 verses, uh, we didn't find there a single command. There's not a single imperative in those first 18 verses, a command to obey. What we found there was news to believe. So consistent with the overarching storyline of the Bible, what we often call the meta-narrative, this gospel begins with gospel, with the good news that God has taken on flesh to rescue sinners living in a dark world. This is one of the main themes of John's gospel, good news. Jesus has come so that we, the undeserving, might receive grace upon grace, as we saw last week in chapter 1, verse 16. John shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. We see the grace of God in his commitment to keep his promises to his people despite their rebellion. I will be your God and you shall be my people. It was a constant refrain throughout the Old Testament. And even though God's people were consistently faithless, giving God every reason to cancel his promises, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14 of chapter 1. So despite our wickedness, God became flesh. He set up residence in a first century Middle Eastern neighborhood in order to to be our God and to save us. God keeps his promises. One of the things that I like to do at the start of a new year is to reflect on the previous year, even briefly, to just kind of recount all the different things that, that God allowed me to experience the good, the bad, the ugly, all those things that shape us and mold us and, and, and God uses to sanctify us and, uh, in, in our walk with him. And I also love to, uh, to, to kind of reconsider, to kind of regroup, you might say, and say, uh, what are some things that I need to reprioritize as I look forward to a new year? And then maybe even resolve to do some things a bit differently. One of the things that I'm always reminded of is God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Even in some of the darkest days, God's faithful. God is faithful. Uh, In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, I love the writing of C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis introduces uh, us to the world of Narnia, a once beautiful world that has grown cold and dark. The four uh, Pevensey children, they come through a magical wardrobe to a snow-covered forest in Narnia where they learn that it's been winter for over a hundred years. Evil reigns. Hope is dead. But with the arrival of these children, things begin to change. The inhabitants of Narnia, they slowly begin to hope again. An ancient Narnian prophecy said before deliverance could come, two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve would appear. And so these children were messengers of hope. But the hopes of the citizens of Narnia were not found in these four children. Their hopes are in someone else, a lion named Aslan. And the children, they hear a Narnian rhyme. It goes like this, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. The Pavensi children brought hope, not in themselves, 
but in the one who would follow their coming and bring deliverance. It's a masterful story. If you've never read it engaged with the writings of C.S. Lewis, I would encourage you to do that. Well, in John chapter 1 here, we meet a man who brought a message of hope. We might say he's a hope dealer. Hope not found in himself, but in someone else. And we've already seen that he's pointing not uh, to himself, but to the true light. John the Baptist points us to the one who can fulfill our greatest hopes and satisfy our deepest longings. And so as we turn our attention today to verses 19 through 34, we find what is a similar setting in many respects and similar circumstances to that of Narnia. Instead of four fictitious Pavensi children, we find a wild-eyed prophet named John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. So let's pick it up in verse number 19 and read down through verse 34 together this morning. I hope that you'll follow along there. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who have sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. They had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness... I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. When you hear the name John the Baptist, those of you who've been in church Uh, for any time at all, Uh, what mental picture comes to your mind? When you think John the Baptist, do you think of someone with wild, dirty hair, dressed in smelly animal skins and eating bugs? Uh, You know, you you almost get this picture of uh, someone who could be like the main character on one of these new reality shows, Man in the Wild or something like that, you know, wilderness preacher, you know, I don't know what you'd call him, but Uh, That's the mental picture a lot of people get, and that probably comes from the description of John the Baptist in Matthew's gospel, actually, because we find there in Matthew chapter 3, these words, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. We're also told that John preached and baptized out in the wilderness, which adds, I think, to the mental image that we might get that, that maybe make him seem a little unstable. I I think what we need to do is we need to think a little more carefully about John the Baptist and and why he dressed the way he did and and, and what he did and why he ate what he did and ministered where he did. I think it will give us a little more uh, accurate understanding of this individual. 
John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist because he was a prophet. Now, I know that seems odd to us, certainly. But these were clothes that identified him as a prophet, almost a uniform for prophets. What we find in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse number 8, it tells us that Elijah wore a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. So John was dressed like Elijah, considered by most to be the greatest prophet in the history of Israel before John. As a prophet, John confronted the powerful, calling people to repentance, including rulers and high priests and Jewish council members. Eventually, those confrontations with those in power would get John arrested and eventually beheaded. But during his ministry, it was best for him to be in the wilderness areas. In the wilderness, he was more likely to be left alone by those in power. And also, since he was called to baptize, he needed access to water. In and around the cities and towns, the water was, was usually controlled by the authorities. And so gaining access to use that water for baptisms would not have been an easy thing for John. And as far as his diet of locusts and wild honey is concerned, that was actually a fairly common diet for someone living in the wilderness areas. That may seem gross to us, eating a locust, much like a grasshopper, but that was fairly common food for poor people in the ancient world and was considered rich in protein and not much different than eating shrimp or crabs or lobster. And so far from being a super eccentric crazy man, this image that typically comes to our minds, John's dress and his location and his diet actually all make a lot of sense for his calling. So when we come to read about John the Baptist here in John's Gospel, we find that John leaves out much of the material that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and puts other material, uh, includes other material not recorded in those Gospels. Remember, we've, we've distinguished the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as the synoptic Gospels. John is a little different. That's not to say it's a lesser Gospel or anything like that. He just approaches things a little differently. And I would really encourage you, uh, if you're looking at, at something to spend some Christmas money on, that you pick up what's called a Harmony of the Gospels. Um, you can probably find it online. You'll find this in a lot of study Bibles nowadays. But what it does is it lays out all the different accounts in the Gospels side by side so you can see them. And so in areas like this where maybe there's some information not included in John's gospel, you'll see that it is included in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And it it kind of allows you to see it on kind of a parallel uh, plane. I would encourage you uh, to do that. Um, And so uh, in this particular case, there are some things that John certainly uh, wanted uh, us to know. And he would have assumed that people had already read at least one of the other gospels. And so he felt it was important to cover some new ground perhaps. Now, So in this case, we don't see him uh, baptize Jesus here in John's gospel, although he refers to it in this passage that we just read. We also don't hear him preach his message of repentance. What we do see is a confrontation between John and a group of Jewish leaders from Jerusalem, something that is not recorded in the other gospels. So it's always good to see those, those differing perspectives and viewpoints. So let's think first about the identity of John the Baptist. We're told here that some of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, Pharisees, uh, sent priests and Levites to figure out who John claimed to be and why he was doing what he was doing. Now you've got to understand, these Jewish leaders uh, had already had to deal with several false messiahs who led groups of people into what they would consider rebellion. They had suffered crackdowns from Rome and would suffer more in the years ahead. And so they wanted to know who this wilderness preacher is, dressed like a prophet, who he was, and at least who he claimed to be. So let's talk first 
about who John the Baptist was not. Because you'll notice here that the Apostle John records John the Baptist's denial in very strong language. He writes, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now why did John use such emphatic language? Well, it's very likely that some of John the Baptist's followers were still confused and might have been confusing others about who John was. Maybe because some Jewish leaders who were followers of neither John the Baptist nor Jesus were making comparisons between the two and using John to disprove the claims of Jesus' followers that Jesus was the Messiah. Whatever the Apostle John's reasons, his recording of John the Baptist's words here are very clear and they show us a man who is humble and faithful He didn't make any false claims about himself. He said very clearly, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. He then went on to deny that he was Elijah or that he was the prophet. And we understand why John said he wasn't the Messiah. But what about these other denials? Now remember, Elijah, the prophet, did not die. Remember that? He was taken by God in a flaming chariot. Then in the very last part of the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So think about this. In its context, after uh, what amounts to 400 years of silence following those verses, the people of God were eagerly awaiting... Elijah. Elijah. Now Jesus himself is quoted in the other Gospels that John the Baptist was Elijah. Which would make you go, wait a minute. Matthew records it clearly. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood who he was, uh, that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. But Jesus didn't mean that John was literally Elijah himself. No, in Matthew chapter 17, three disciples, I remind you, including John, had just seen Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. They recognized Elijah as Elijah, not John the Baptist. What Jesus means is that John the Baptist was the Elijah-like figure promised in Malachi. John the Baptist himself denied being Elijah because he wasn't literally Elijah. He was an Elijah-type figure, which is what God had promised to send as a forerunner. That's who John the Baptist is. And so the question about the prophet, it comes from a prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Where we find these words, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This prophet promised by by Moses was the Messiah himself. Not John the Baptist. It was a prophet, but not the prophet. who was Jesus. That's who John the Baptist was not. So who was John the Baptist? Exasperated, this delegation, they naturally want to know, well, then who are you? Who are you? We we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And in answering, John goes to Isaiah chapter 40, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke also use to explain who John the Baptist was. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John's role 
was not about himself. He was the forerunner. He was calling for repentance so that people would be ready for Messiah. And his ministry was very effective in this way. Those who listened to John and were baptized by him were much more likely to listen to Jesus. Those who refused to hear John's message also refused to hear Jesus. He was the forerunner. Let's think secondly this morning about the ministry of John the Baptist. Now as soon as these delegates had gotten a straight answer from John, they then demanded to know why John was baptizing. Since he was not the Christ, nor Elijah himself, not the, the, promised, uh, the promised prophet, what was it he was called to do? John's ministry was preaching a message of repentance and then baptizing with a baptism of repentance. He was authoritatively, boldly calling people to turn from their sin, seek the Lord, be baptized as a sign of repentance and a desire for cleansing. That's what he was called to do. Now, baptism had been practiced for years by converts to Judaism from among the Gentiles. When a Gentile was ready to turn away from false gods and join the one true God, he would be baptized many times as, as a cleansing to prepare himself to be accepted among the people. This ritual was, was rooted in the idea that Gentiles were unclean. John was now calling Jewish people to be baptized, including Jewish leaders, he was acting as if they were unclean and needed cleansing in order to be ready for Messiah. John's message and ministry of baptism were the same. God's, God's people did need cleansing, and they couldn't cleanse themselves. So God had said this again and again to his people, but their pride kept them from hearing it. He told his circumcised people that they needed to circumcise their hearts, remember, but they could not, so he would circumcise their hearts for them. He said to his people in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will sprinkle, them, uh, I'll sprinkle uh, clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. John was sent to baptize people as a sign of this promised cleansing. Then he talks about something he was not worthy to do. Even though John was commissioned by God to baptize, and he had the authority to call people to repent and baptize them with a baptism of repentance, he was very clear about how unworthy he was compared to the Messiah himself. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The disciples, think students of a rabbi. This would have been a common thing. If there was a rabbi, a teacher, uh, he would have a following. And those who followed him, those who uh, went after him, those who were apprenticed to him would be considered his, his students or his disciples. They would often secure lodging and transportation and handle finances and prepare meals and, and those kinds of things. They were not only disciples, they were servants to their rabbi. They were, but, but there were limits to their service. They were not slaves. There were some things that they would not do. Among those tasks, considered to be beneath the dignity, even a rabbi's disciples was bending down to unstrap the rabbi's sandals in order to wash his feet. This was reserved for household slaves. And so John said that the Messiah was so much greater 
that he, than he was that John was not even worthy of doing the service of a household slave to him. And of course, this, this understanding makes Jesus' actions that we'll see later in John chapter 13 where he washes his disciples' feet even more powerful. Let's talk about where he ministered. As the Apostle John closes out his, uh, this day's narrative, he points out where John the Baptist was ministering. This is worth noting. He says it was in Bethany across the Jordan, or Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. Now, crossing the Jordan River in the wilderness to get to John the Baptist would have reminded all of these Jewish people of the Exodus. And this was intentional. As John was leading the way for what is a new exodus, a new, a definitive, redemptive event for God's people. How amazing is that? And let's look finally this morning at the testimony, the testimony of John the Baptist. And we know that John the Baptist was very, very familiar with the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah 53 describes the sufferings of the Messiah and compares Messiah to a lamb. Listen to Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was giving testimony, witness to the Lamb of God. What about the Spirit of God? Isaiah prophesied this anointing for the Messiah three different times in Isaiah chapter 11 and 42 and 61, so we know that John the Baptist was very familiar with Isaiah's writing. There shall come, from, uh, come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. In Isaiah 42.1 it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. But isn't it interesting that John did not know with certainty that Jesus was the Messiah? That he was the one sent by God to baptize, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. But once John saw the Spirit resting and remaining on Jesus, he knew that Jesus was the ultimate anointed one, the Messiah. Then the Son of God. You see, once John the Baptist saw the Spirit of God descend on Jesus, knew that he was the Messiah, John did not hold back from testifying. He proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. So John's message was a message of hope. 
We have no other hope than to flee to Christ. And we need no other hope. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, our sin has been forever removed. Our guilt no longer remains. We are free from the power and the penalty of sin. Jesus, the lion from the tribe of Judah, offered himself as the sacrificial lamb so traitors would be forgiven, justice would be satisfied, and death would be broken. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. In the climax of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, Aslan, the great lion, marches to the stone table and is murdered by the white witch. The two girls, Lucy and Susan, they cry themselves to sleep at the dead lion's feet. Some of you who've seen it, you, you might remember that scene. Feeling hopeless as the evil witch's army marches to make war on Narnia. And at that moment, something happens. The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All colors and shadows were changed that for a moment they didn't see the important thing. Then they did. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from, from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Oh, oh, cried the two girls, rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, added Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. Well, what does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a voice behind their backs. It is. They looked around, and there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they'd seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself, who in C.S. Lewis's writing represents Jesus Christ. After their initial shock had worn off, Susan asked Aslan what it meant. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still that she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incarnation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, the lion from the tribe of Judah, offered himself as the sacrificial lamb so traitors would be forgiven, justice would be satisfied, Death would be broken. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Our heads bowed, our eyes closed for just a moment this morning. As we look back on 2022, we would all have to acknowledge there were certainly some things that we couldn't have anticipated. We don't have that kind of knowledge and that kind of ability. As we look forward to 2023, we can be certain that once again, in a broken, sinful world, there will be difficult days. There will be challenges. 
Days that our faith is questioned even. Days that we might be inclined to question the very sovereignty of God. But in the midst of all of that, we can know with certainty that God is good. And he does good. And he has demonstrated his love for us, scripture says, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Lamb of God, slain for your sins and mine. If you're here today or you're watching online and you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to take that step of faith. I can't think of a better way to start a new year and to take that step of faith and to know that you are in a right relationship with God, not because of anything you have done or anything you could ever do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. He died in your place. He died in my place. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. If you're here today or you're watching online and your testimony is one of faith in Jesus Christ, you know Jesus as more than a historical figure, a great teacher, you know him as your Savior and your Lord, then it's my prayer that as we look forward to all that God has in store for us in 2023, all the uncertainties, all the unknowns, all those things, we can trust him as good and gracious and sovereign and know that he will use even the most difficult of circumstances, even the darkest days, to mold and shape us into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we all march into 23 with a resolve to much like John the Baptist, and all of our imperfections, all of our insecurities, all of the things that we deal with in a broken, sinful world, that we will find ourselves as a matter of absolute priority pointing people to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's amazing grace. Father, we thank you. We praise you. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might, through faith in him, be declared righteous. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.